Today's episode is about an Italian-born actor, sex symbol, and early pop icon. He was known as the Latin Lover, and he was one of the most popular stars of the 1920s, and one of the most recognized stars from the silent film era. What lies beneath? Rudolph Valentino. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi, friends and taphophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. And today I have my very own starlet with me on the podcast. <laughs> Randy. I don't know about starlet, but. Aw, <laughs> uh, you're my very own starlet. <laughs> well, I am happy to be back. It's been a little bit since I've been on an episode. Yeah, you've been a busy girl. Well, if we're going with the starlet theme, I think we need to think of like fancy stage names for us, screen names, I guess. <laughs> I know. We totally do. Maybe we'll get some ideas throughout the podcast today. Yeah, we'll have to kind of think about that one. It's going to take some deep thinking just to get the very right one. <laughs> so I went just last Saturday to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah, that looked really neat. It was. It was just beautiful. It had a lake in the center with this Grecian temple-looking mausoleum out on an island in the middle of the lake. So many famous burials are here. There was Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, Burt Reynolds, Cecil B. DeMille, so many stars from recent to clear way back in the silent film era, like the man we're talking about today, Rudolph Valentino. Well, that's really cool. I didn't really realize there was a cemetery that was kind of known for having a lot of the stars buried, but I guess it makes sense in Hollywood. That's right. And there's actually three or four cemeteries that has a lot of the stars in it. So we went to two of them last Saturday and Hollywood Forever, it didn't disappoint. Just lots of grass, lots of animals. There were swans and geese and ducks in the lake. There were peacocks roaming the grounds. Wow, that's just not what you even picture. Like, when you think of cemeteries, at least the ones that a lot of them that we're used to. <laughs> no, not <laughs> at all. animals and water and, <laughs> but you know, Hollywood is kind of extra. So <laughs> it makes sense that they're cemeteries. So it'd be extra too. <laughs> True statement. So yes, it is very extra and <laughs> just outlandish, outrageous. There's a pyramid, a reflecting pool with another mausoleum at the end of it. 
and they were having yoga along this reflecting pool as we got there in the morning. I think they do yoga five or six days a week there in forever. Yoga in the cemetery. Yeah. That's like my kind of thing. Heck, our kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> I was wishing that I had gone to do yoga. That would have been fun to say that I did yoga at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah, they have a colony of feral cats that live there. And I got a lot of pictures of the friendliest one. His name is Close Up. <laughs> and oh, so he is a black panther, just a gorgeous animal. And he was following Carrie, who is the tour guide at the cemetery. I wasn't on the tour, but I had seen a video that she had made on YouTube. And so I recognized her and her voice. And I looked and there was close up following her around. <laughs> so I got some really great photos of him. And he definitely posed on all the monuments. <laughs> so cute. And he was a hoot. He was a little diva, wanted his picture <laughs> taken as well. I don't know if a lot of the listeners know, but I am like the resident cat lady <laughs> of like, the family. We're all kind of cat ladies, <laughs> but I have three cats and I love, love, love black cats. And so I have a little house panther as well. Her name is yeah. Sabrina. And so um, I was just looking at all the pictures of close-up, like, oh, he's so handsome. What a cutie. He is. He just looked like a miniature Black Panther. Yeah, he did. That you would see, you know, in the wild or a zoo or something. He just was gorgeous. But we love our Brie Bear. Yeah, my She's Brina. a sweet kitty. And you grew up with a black cat when you were tiny. We had mm -hmm. a big, fluffy black cat named Spooky. I mean, and honestly, probably the listeners are like, oh, of course they like black cats. Like, it's pretty on brand for us. So <laughs> why <laughs> not? Probably not so much of a surprise, but I guess not. it was pretty funny. And mom's like sending me pictures of close up like, oh, I found husband material for Brina. He's <laughs> cute. And even the ground squirrels would... Come right up to you and look at you like, hello, <laughs> are you here to see me? And stand on their hind legs about a foot and a half away from you. And I said, hi. And he just came closer and he looked up at me like I was going to give him something. And I got some really cute pictures of him as well. <laughs> it's more like, where's my food, biatch? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you going to drop me some bread? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the peacocks were just huge, gorgeous animals. Just, I was a little intimidated because they're really big and they would walk right around you. And I just kept thinking like, are you going to go for my face or something? You know, <laughs> I wasn't sure how they were going to act, but I got some gorgeous photos of all the animals. And Brad was with me and he was like, you know, I think you enjoyed taking photos of the animals today as much as you did the headstones. And I said, well, right. I guess it's Something because different. you don't usually run into a lot of animals in our cemetery wanderings. And it was just kind of fun. Sometimes we'll find some deer and that's really fun too. But anyway, so just a little side note, the 
there's a lot of animal activity at Hollywood Forever. And it just was really peaceful and relaxing. And after you drive into Los Angeles and into Hollywood, you're going to need a little peaceful and relaxing because, wow. <laughs> right. Rudolph Valentino, he is in what they call the Cathedral Mausoleum. The original section was completed in 1919 and was considered one of the finest examples in the world of Southern Italian Renaissance architecture. It is beautiful inside. This is a massive mausoleum now. Marble floors and vault doors, so just marble everywhere. As you walk in, larger-than-life-sized marble statues of the Twelve Apostles. And there is gold trim in the ceilings, arched doorways, etched ceiling medallions, and vintage chandeliers, and gorgeous stained glass windows. In fact, Valentino's vault is by a beautiful stained glass window that sparkles color into the room. It's just a beautiful outdoor picture, and it's wow. just lovely. It sounds like a cathedral. I mean, your description yes. sounds just like a lot of the cathedrals we've seen in Europe and in Italy, especially. Exactly. There are so many stars there and stories that a person could just go crazy trying to tell them all. But today I decided on the story of Valentino because he's someone that I think we don't know as much about right now. He was way back in the silent film era, and I would venture a guess that most people haven't seen too many silent films. I do every once in a while just for fun and to see the old stars. Right. So I felt that there was so much that we could learn about him and kind of dig into that story. And we've all heard the name, right? Valentino. But what do we really know about the man other than that he was a big movie star. Yeah, I really don't know much about him prior to this. And I could kind of picture his face and know the name, but that's really pretty much it. Mm -hmm. So uh, Valentino was born to a French mother, Marie, and Italian father, Giovanni Guglielmi, who was an army officer and a veterinarian. He had an older brother, Alberto, and a younger sister, Maria. He was born Rodolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Filibert Guglielmi di Valentina de Antoine Guola. That is a mouthful. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yes, I mean, that is a name. <laughs> and he was born in the small town of Castellaneta in Italy. It is said that as a child, Valentino was spoiled and troublesome. He did poorly in school, and he would skip class or not pay attention. He attended military school, and afterwards he tried to enlist in Italy's Royal Naval Academy, but was rejected because his chest size was an inch too small, which I had no idea that was a thing. <laughs> not muscular <laughs> They enough, only I wanted guess. large chested men in their Royal Navy. <laughs> And when he was 15, his mother enrolled him in the Royal Academy of Agriculture, where he received a degree in scientific agriculture. Next, he decides to see the world a little, and he moves to Paris, France. But it wasn't really the life he envisioned because he didn't find any work. 
He was there less than a year before spending all his money, and he actually ended up begging on the streets and asked his mother to send him funds to return him back to Italy. When he returned to Italy, he was unable to find employment there, and everyone was just sure that he would never get anywhere in life. His uncles decided he should be sent to the United States, where they felt he could learn to be a man. <laughs> and what a man he became. <laughs> <laughs> he sailed aboard the Cleveland and arrived in New York on December 23rd, 1913. He was processed there at Ellis Island. He spoke no English, had very little money, so he began his life in America working as a busboy, then as a waiter and a gardener. He started doing some acting in some small theater productions, and he also was a very good dancer. And I found this story in a 100-year-old article talking about his rise to fame. It said, Dancer Joan Sawyer's partner walked out on her one night, leaving her flat as a discarded cold cream case. <laughs> but he also left his dress suit, and Joan, aghast and nonplussed, sought a substitute at the agencies, but in vain. Suddenly she thought of the handsome busboy whose highest ambition at the time was to be a handsome waiter, and she sought him out for she had a notion that he could dance. He must dance. <laughs> so funny. There was no out for him. Would he dance? <laughs> he showed her and Joan marveled. Then arose the greater question. Would the discarded dress suit fit him like the skin of a snake? <laughs> Into vaudeville then and westward the course of empire took its way for the debonair immigrant. Oh, so funny. So funny. <laughs> like we said, extra. So extra. <laughs> Hollywood is extra. The debonair immigrant. <laughs> he also worked as a male taxi dancer at a place called Maxim's. I haven't heard of taxi dancers before. What is that? <laughs> In some of the dance clubs of the time, a person could come in and buy tickets, and there were paid dancers there in the club. And so you would hand one of the paid dancers your ticket, and they would go on the dance floor and dance that number with you. Okay. So I could see how this could be really fun, but also kind of icky if you were <laughs> one of the ones having to be the taxi dancer. Right. You know, you might get someone you really liked or someone maybe would keep asking you for every number. I don't know, just sound like... Yeah, it totally would depend on who exactly was giving you their ticket. Yes. And I could see, though, too, how if you were a lady or a gentleman that loved to dance and maybe you didn't have anyone that danced, you could go to one of these clubs and you could dance the night away with professional dancers. Right, like that's kind of cool. It looked kind of fun. I mean, better than clubs nowadays where you're just like, okay, there's all these, you know, randos anyways, so. Right, and so he worked as one of the paid dancers and I read that the tickets were about 10 cents each and 
they would get paid about five cents per dance. Okay. Also around this time, a dancer named Bonnie Glass performed there at Maxim's and she asked him to partner with her on her tours after she gave him many dance lessons. They were billed as Bonnie Glass and Rudolfo during the 1915-1916 season. They had some success and failures as a dance team, but the cincher for Bonnie was when Valentino was arrested for blackmail, some say burglary, which ended the Glass-Valentino partnership in which she testified even though Valentino was found innocent. Oh, scandalous. Blackmail slash burglary? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure exactly if that one is referring to the next story, but I found a story about how Valentino enjoyed befriending many people of high society, and he was friends to this Chilean heiress, Blanca de Sales, who was unhappily married to a prominent businessman, John de Sales, with whom she had a son. Now, whether Valentino and Blanca actually had a romantic relationship, we don't know. But it was believed at the time that Valentino was infatuated with her. Eventually, the DeSales divorced in this sensational divorce trial, and Valentino took the stand to support Blanca's claim of her husband's well-known infidelity. Well, this really angered Mr. DeSales, and once the divorce was granted, he used his political connections to have Valentino arrested. So I'm not sure if that's the arrest right. that it talked about before, but in this article it said he was arrested along with a Mrs. Time, like the herb, who was a known madam on vice charges, so that's a completely different charge. But the evidence was flimsy at best, and after a few days in jail, Valentino's bail was lowered from $10,000 to $1,500. Hmm, so it sounds like just like some bad blood all, all mixed up there. Yeah. The scandal, unfortunately, was well publicized along with the trial. And Valentino found that as a result of this bad publicity, no one would hire him. And some of his old friends and acquaintances even stopped talking to him. Blanca de Sales, unfortunately, wasn't even grateful to him for what he had done. It seems she hadn't even thanked him for his testimony. And then in another crazy twist, after the trial, she fatally shot and killed her ex-husband in a custody fight over their son. Oh, oh my. She's just yeah. a loose cannon. Huge scandal. So then began another sensational trial where Blanca was acquitted of murder charges, declaring self-defense, but for Valentino, his name was again dragged through the mud. After the scandal, he decided to change his name from Rodolfo Guglielmi to different variations of Rudolf Valentino. So this is where he starts to go by Valentino, being as there was no scandal associated with that last name. And besides, Americans he had met had trouble pronouncing Guglielmi. After the trial is when he moves to Hollywood, and while in town, Valentino met actor Norman Carey, who convinced him to try a career in cinema, still in the silent film era. By 1919, he had carved out a career in bit parts, 
He began to play small parts in quite a few films. He was typically cast as a heavy, a villain, or a gangster. <laughs> At the time, the epitome of male masculinity was Douglas Fairbanks, fair complexion, light eyes, and an all-American look. With his dark, swarthy complexion, Valentino was usually the opposite of this norm and seemed exotic to moviegoers. Yes, he really was. Yeah, and you can see it's like the, the dark, handsome stranger, mm -hmm. but can kind of be mysterious and maybe villainous. They're kind of stereotyping casting there. <laughs> right. Also in 1919, Valentino married Jean Acker. In an article about the impulsive marriage, it says that this early marriage took place shortly after Rudy came to Hollywood, and it seems that it was just part of a lark at a party. From the first, it was a mistake, but all Hollywood, of course, was crazy. <laughs> People act on impulse and have regrets later. Rudy and Jean scarcely knew each other. They had met one evening at a party and planned a horseback ride together, and during that ride became engaged. That's of quick. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been one very romantic horse ride. That was a ride. <laughs> a few hours later, Rudy sauntered into the Hollywood Hotel, where he chanced to meet May Allison and Mr. and Mrs. Maxwell Garger. In the exuberance of a man in love, he confessed to them he was going to be married. Mr. and Mrs. Garger were planning a party next evening as a farewell to Richard Rowland, president of Metro, as a sort of Philip to the event, they suggested he get a marriage license immediately and turn their party into a wedding. Rudy, impractical and careless, agreed. After the ceremony and supper, they danced until 2 a.m. when the bride unceremoniously left him. Jean at the time was working with Fatty Arbuckle in The Roundup, and when the disillusioned bridegroom sought her out on location the next morning, he found she had skipped to Los Angeles. He followed her there only to be told she could never return to him. Rudy left at once to New York to make tests for the four horsemen, and Jean asked for an annulment. They didn't see each other again for four months. The success from his movie turned Rudy from a penniless nobody to a genuine movie star, and Miss Acker changed her demands from annulment to divorce with alimony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Rudy fought this and asked for a divorce in the meantime. He continued to pay dearly for this mistake of his youth even after the divorce was granted. Jean Acker continued to use this for her financial advantage. For example, she went on a vaudeville tour using the last name Valentino. <laughs> she started insisting people call her Mrs. Valentino. She was never a real wife, but she certainly did what she could to look like she was the one that was wronged when in reality the injured party was Rudy. Aww, that's just so sad. Yeah, so like aggressive and predatory. Kind of. That. Valentino seemed so excited and happy, and I think he was just looking for love. But what he didn't realize and what I seem to have found in sources was that Acker was probably gay. Okay, sure. And one story was that she needed to get out of a lesbian love triangle where both sides had threatened to ruin her career if she left either of them. And so this angle was that becoming close to Valentino, it seemed that she saw a chance to escape the triangle unscathed. And Valentino seemed oblivious to her sexual orientation or predicament. Well, right. I mean, he 
really? They didn't even know each other. It was like one outing together, like first date type conversation. And then they got married. Yes. And on their wedding night, Acker actually locked Valentino out of their hotel room rather than come clean. So needless to say, the marriage was never consummated. Right. He said in public, she said she was my soulmate, but really she was my checkmate. (laughs) (laughs) Aw, poor guy. Poor Rudy. Yeah. By 1919, he had begun to carve out a career. It was a bit part as a cabaret parasite in drama The Eyes of Youth that would catch the attention of a powerful screenwriter named June Mathis, as she thought Valentino would be perfect for her next movie. Mathis suggested he be cast in the leading role in The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, where he would be featured in the movie's tango scenes. She had to work hard to convince the executives at Metro to sign Valentino, but they finally agreed. It was directed by Rex Ingram. The director and Valentino reportedly did not get along, and it was up to June Mathis to constantly keep the peace. The movie was released in 1921, and the film was a commercial and critical success and consequently made Valentino a star. He stole the hearts of female moviegoers by dancing a tango in his first scene in the film. He earned the nickname Tango Legs. (laughs) That Tango Legs, oh my. (laughs) The movie was a box office hit, and the darkly handsome actor quickly became a star. You have to admit, Randy, that the tango is a very sexy, sensual dance. It is a very, very sexy dance. And I feel like, especially in the 1920s. <laughs> right. That's true. Like, more risque. I wondered that, as I was writing this, how many times had women even seen an Argentine tango on the screen up to this time? Who knows? But they were all like, wow, this dark, handsome man and his tango dancing. They thought he was really sexy and really just started his career. I bet all those women wished he was still working as a taxi dancer then. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) He next landed the title role in the 1921 picture The Sheik, starring opposite Agnes Ayres. This desert romance told the story of a Bedouin chief who wins over a cultured Anglo woman. The mania around Valentino had grown to such heights that some women reportedly fainted when they saw him (laughs) on screen. (laughs) It just sounds like so ridiculous, but we do see footage of even Beatles or just famous actors where women were just fainting all over themselves seeing famous people right it's just it seems a little much though at the movie theater you see him on screen and "Ah!" (laughs) pass out in the aisle dump your popcorn (laughs) the following year valentino starred in blood and sand in this film he played a bullfighter named juan gallardo who falls under the spell of a charming seductress played by the popular silent screen vamp nita naldi this movie further established valentino as the leading male star of his time in 1923 valentino became unhappy with his salary he felt earning twelve hundred dollars a week wasn't fair when several other major stars made up to ten thousand per week He also wanted to exercise more creative control, 
He felt he should have better sets and costumes and wanted to film in Europe. He also had said that he objected to a particular clause in his contract that said that if in his manner or bearing was not in accord with the desires of the famous players Lasky Corp, he could be laid off for six months. That's pretty rough when your manner or bearing, that could be taken quite in several different directions. Right, there's a lot of leeway and gray area there. Definitely. So Valentino went on a one-man strike against his studio at the time, Famous Players Lasky, and refused to show up on set. In turn, Famous Players Lasky sued him, which resulted in an injunction which prohibited Valentino from making films or doing any other service that was not for the company. The latter half was later overturned, stating Valentino should be able to make a living in some way. So around this time, Valentino married actress and set designer Natasha Rambova. Her original name was Winifred Hudnut. <laughs> <laughs> I would change my name too to Natasha Rambova if my name was Winifred Hudnut. I know, it's like complete... <laughs> 180 in the <laughs> impression it gives off. Hudnut. You gotta, you gotta give us your best Russian, Natasha Rambova. It is Natasha Rambova. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was perfect. So yes, I, I'm thinking about my stage name and Natasha Rambova. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> But yeah, Winifred Hudnut, I'm pretty sure I would have changed my name too. I have a good name, so right. it's okay. <laughs> right. Valentino had first met Natasha on the set of Uncharted Seas in 1921. The two also worked together on the Nazimova production of Camille, by which time they were romantically involved. They enjoyed being together, and it was said that they enjoyed going to Palm Springs on the weekends to enjoy the outdoors and a relaxed atmosphere for them both. They married on May 13, 1922 in Mexicali, Mexico. This resulted in Valentino being jailed for bigamy since he had not been divorced for a full year, which was the law in California at the time. Oh. So this was still within a year of the one-night marriage yeah. type Thing. Yes. Okay. That should have been annulled, but then wasn't because then she decided, oh, wait a minute, he's now a big star. <laughs> I think I want to go for some alimony. So then now that he's actually, you know, found someone, he gets jailed for bigamy. That's <laughs> sad. Even though he caught some big breaks in some ways, it's just amazing how many times this guy actually goes to jail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Reports say that he spent the night crying that Natasha was his legal wife and he should not be there. Days passed and his studio, Famous Players Lasky, refused to post bail. Eventually, a few friends, including June Mathis, his screenwriter friend who cast him in that first big role, came together and were able to post the cash bail. After getting out of jail, the couple still had to wait the year or face the possibility of being arrested again. And Natasha and Valentino lived in separate apartments in New York City, each with their own roommates. 
Paul Ivano, their roommate through much of their dating, stated that one night Valentino ran out in a panic thinking he had killed Natasha during an all-night lovemaking session <laughs> when in fact she had just passed out and was revived with cold water. <laughs> I'm sorry, this shouldn't be funny, but I just think it's so hilarious. Like, the girl needed a cheeseburger or something. Look, you got to refuel, guys. You got to take a break here. Give the girl some snacks. Like, and then can you just see him running out to his roommates and be like, I killed her. I killed Natasha with our lovemaking. And they take a glass of water in there and they're like, <laughs> and she's like revived she's like oh, oh okay sorry oh my gosh latin lover wow. indeed oh man that guy has stamina apparently goodness <laughs> Whoa. so to ensure that his name remained in the public eye valentino following the suggestion of his new manager george ullman embarked on a national dance tour it was sponsored by a cosmetic company called Mineral Lava with Rambova, who had formerly been a ballerina as his partner. The tour was a success, making him about $7,000. And during the same period, he published a book of poetry called From Daydreams. And he had his biography written as a series of articles in a movie fan magazine. So here's a great article I found about this Mineral Lava dance tour. And it says, Rudolph Valentino, the much admired, in search of beauty. Finally, the whole country will see the famous silent film star and dancer, accompanied by his charming wife, who will also be his dance partner in what will be a memory that will never be forgotten. A combination dance tour and beauty contest on a grand scale sponsored by the Mineral Lava Beauty Clay Company. Rudolph Valentino will forsake active work in the motion pictures studio and will be on this wonderful tour of cities across the country in search of a typical American beauty who may, if the fates are propitious, be the leading woman of his next super picture when he returns to the screen. The rise of this magnetic young screen star has been meteoric. It is doubtful whether any other individual of the screen has so captured the hearts and imaginations of the American public. Two of the most notable productions ever made owe no little of their vast popularity and appeal to Rudolph Valentino's personality, to his skill in pantomime, and his sympathetic interpretation of emotions both hectic and subdued. <laughs> <laughs> his brilliant work in The Four Horsemen made him at once the foremost screen figure, and following this, his wonderfully passionate interpretation of the central character in The Sheik won for him a popularity that has made him a household name. Wherever he goes on his present tour, the cities turn out to greet him as if he were a national hero. In each city, he and his wife will give a public exhibition of graceful dancing, and then from a bevy of beauties previously selected by a special committee, Mr. Valentino himself will present the trophy and a dance. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's a lot packed in. There's a lot packed in there. The way they described things back in the day, it just is laughable now, but it just is so descriptive and 
so dramatic. Yes, both hectic and subdued. (laughs) (laughs) So then during this time of the tour, the couple legally remarried. Mm -hmm. And it seems that many of Valentino's friends did not like Rambova. During his relationship with her, he lost many friends and business associates, including June Mathis. Valentino's new wife took a dominant role in managing his career. And unfortunately, it seems she was really controlling and put people on edge Mm. and people didn't like where she was directing his career. Some male critics and moviegoers were already put off by his somewhat androgynous style. And Valentino's next few films accentuated this quality even more. His wife was helping to pick parts for him, and they were ones that made him seem more effeminate, as seen in 1924's Mansour Bouquer. And while he was still a box office success, Valentino did suffer a backlash for this change in his screen persona. So kind of stepping away from trying to be the macho man type role. Some of them were more dandyish. I think it was hard in those days too because they really made up the men in the silent film era. And I think that that put off a lot of American men because it made them look more effeminate. And so apparently some of these roles were more and more towards that side and supposedly it really put off the american male right i mean that was a time where it was almost toxic masculinity right you know to a point where it's like oh no yeah i don't want to be seen men doing anything girly right valentino had no children though he did desperately want them reportedly he dreamed of having traditional wife and children, though he dated and married women who were quite the opposite of that dream. One of the biggest issues of his and Rambova's marriage was her desire not to have children. Nita Nalda, a close friend, claimed Rambova illegally terminated up to three pregnancies while married to Valentino. Though there is no way to verify this, and it just may be hateful gossip, But whether the story is true or not, Valentino had said that Rambova was determined to remain childless, and this was a big issue in their marriage. Right. During his life, Valentino also had a love for animals. He was an accomplished rider since boyhood and owned several horses. And he and Rambova spoke of opening a zoo and socialized with animal trainers. They had two Great Danes, a large gopher snake, and a green monkey. (laughs) From their trainer friend, Rambova purchased a lion cub named Zila for him. Oh my goodness. And Valentino apparently loved Zila, but eventually had to give her to a trainer outside of town when she bit a stranger who happened to be a private eye hired by Jean Acker, his first wife, to prove the couple was cohabitating so this must have been during the time before you know they could legally marry right and you know honestly that's a that's a good little guard lion (laughs) that's right (laughs) better than a guard dog you already have two great danes (laughs) but also having a wild lion is not great so oh goodness yeah valentino also loved to cook especially simple Italian dishes like spaghetti and meatballs, which you can just imagine would be 
amazing. Yes. According to his friends, his love of cooking was even more intense than his romantic life. Well, we've heard about his romantic <laughs> life. More intense than making people pass out? <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> the people around his table, at the end of the meal, they would all just fall off their chairs. <laughs> they would have to splash them with the water in their goblets. In the 1920s, Rudolph Valentino was considered fashion forward, and what he wore, others would wear too. So in 1924, a new company called Ritz Carlton, isn't that hilarious yeah. to hear of that? New as company. New company. But they were formed to produce a next Valentino film. Again, not how we think of Ritz-Carlton in producing films either. Right. But this unmade film would have been based off the story of El Cid, set in 14th century Spanish court. Valentino would play a Moorish nobleman and warrior who falls in love with a Moorish princess. And having the right to select his own story, Valentino decided to make The Hooded Falcon. The script was written by... Dun-dun-dun... Natasha Rambova. <laughs> so Rudolph and Natasha, they went on a trip to Spain to purchase props and costumes and did extensive research for the movie. While in Spain, Rudolph grew a beard. Then in November, the couple arrived back in New York and they literally faced a barrage of, of course, photographers and fans, but with him wearing the beard, it caused like such a sensation that the following announcement was to be issued by the Associated Master Barbers. <laughs> Didn't know there was even Associated Master Barbers, but they sent out this press release. Our members are pledged not to attend a showing of Rudolph Valentino's photo plays as long as he remains bewhiskered. Bewhiskered. The male population is very likely to be guided by the famous actor to the extent of making beards fashionable again. And such a fashion would not only work harmful injury to barbers, but would so utterly deface America as to make American citizens difficult to distinguish from Russians. <laughs> Basically, they're like, oh no, if everybody starts growing beards, we're going to be out of jobs, guys. Like, we, we want people to want to have their face shaved. <laughs> <laughs> we do not support the bewhiskered man. Oh, man. He'll <laughs> deface America. <laughs> In 1925, Valentino was able to negotiate a new contract with United Artists, which included the stipulation that his wife Natasha not be allowed on any of his movie sets. It was perceived that her presence had delayed earlier productions such as Monsieur Bouquet. So shortly thereafter, he separated from Rambova. And around this time, he mended many personal and professional relationships which had been damaged because of Rambova, including his relationship with his little mother, June Mathis. The end of the marriage was bitter, which is demonstrated in Valentino's changed will in which he bequeaths Natasha one dollar. 
<laughs> Just one spite dollar. <laughs> that says it all. But despite all of his personal problems, Valentino returned to the roles and kind of films that had made him famous. And he made two of his most critically acclaimed films. The Eagle in 1925 featured him as a Russian soldier seeking to avenge the wrongs committed against his family by the Tsarina. The following year, Valentino made a sequel of sorts to his earlier hit, The Sheik, in The Son of the Sheik. Both were co-starring a popular Hungarian-born actress, Vilma Bonki, and it seemed that he had a brief relationship with her before he got involved with actress Pola Negri. Son of the Sheik, unbeknownst to all, would be his last film. With all the hype and hysteria around him being a sex symbol, Latin lover, and the man that had all the women literally swooning, it seems that he was still quite sensitive about his persona. This came about after the DeSalle trial in New York when his masculinity had been slandered in print. Women loved him and thought him to be the epitome of romance. However, like we said, American men seemed to be kind of threatened and comfortable with him and were said to even walk out of his movies in disgust. And at the time, like we talked about, Douglas Fairbanks kind of blonde, blue-eyed, manly man was the epitome of what America thought manhood was in film. And so he was always being criticized by journalists who would call his masculinity into question. He had his pomaded, you know, slicked back hair, and his clothing very neat. I mean, he was metro, you know? Right, well, he, like, took care of himself and, like, took pride in his appearance, mm -hmm. which is very different than, like, the rub some dirt on it type, like, rough and tumble type <laughs> image <laughs> that I picture, you know? <laughs> Put some gasoline on that wound and it'll be okay. They're like, he uses pomade in his hair? Like, what kind of man uses pomade? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so whether he was really effeminate or not, that was how the journalists kind of tried to make him look. And he just hated these stories, of course. And he was known to carry around these newspaper clippings and criticize them and moan and groan about them. The Chicago Tribune reported in July 1926 in an editorial called pink powder puffs and powder puffs was also a way in those days of saying maybe that you were gay and so there's kind of a double meaning here in this title mm -hmm. but they reported that a vending machine that was dispensing pink talcum powder had appeared in an upscale hotel washroom scandal <laughs> An editorial that followed used the story to protest the feminization of American men and blamed the talcum powder on Valentino and his chic movies. The piece infuriated Valentino, who just happened to be in Chicago at the time, and he actually challenged the newspaper writer to a duel <laughs> and then to a boxing match. He's like, I'll show you. Okay, if I can't kill you, then can I at least Can beat I just you? beat you up? <laughs> so apparently neither was responded to, and Valentino responded to the piece 
You slur my Italian ancestry. You ridicule upon my Italian name. You cast doubt upon my manhood. In the New York Times, July 21, 1926, it said, Rudolph Valentino arrived here yesterday from Chicago, indignant at the editorial which appeared in the Chicago Tribute Sunday, entitled Pink Powder Puffs, and vowing to return there next Monday or Tuesday to whip the man who wrote it. <laughs> Shortly afterward, Valentino met with the famed journalist H.L. Mencken for advice on how best to deal with the incident. Mencken advised Valentino to let the dreadful farce roll along to exhaustion. Mencken found Valentino to be likable and gentlemanly and wrote this sympathetic statement in an article published in the Baltimore Sun a week after Valentino's death. Quote, it was not that trifling Chicago episode that was writing him. It was the whole grotesque futility of his life. Had he achieved out of nothing a vast and dizzy success? Then that success was hollow as well as vast, a colossal and preposterous nothing. Was he acclaimed by yelling multitudes? Then every time the multitudes yelled, he felt himself blushing inside. The thing at the start must have only bewildered him. But in those last days, unless I am a worse psychologist than even the professors of psychology, it was revolting him. Worse, it was making him afraid. Here was a young man who was living daily the dream of millions of other men. Here was one who was catnip to women. Here was one who had wealth and fame. And here was one who was very unhappy. End quote. Isn't that just a sad thought? That every time the crowd screamed and women fainted, that he actually was maybe embarrassed or right. felt strange about it. It wasn't like, ah, the crowds. It sounds like he wasn't sure how to feel about it. And here, you know, the women just thought he was everything. And yet on the inside, he didn't have what he really wanted and he was unhappy. Yeah, it just reminds you of the saying, you know, money can't buy happiness. And he really wanted to be in the spotlight as far as his career goes. But then once he was there, it was like, yeah, not truly fulfilling to him. Yeah, it it's sad. And I think he really wanted those traditional things that he didn't seem to be able to find as well. He wanted true love and someone to love and support him and have a family with, but he just didn't ever find the right person it almost is like he was really lonely like he had all of these like this yeah. fame and all these people that you know supposedly liked him but when it came down to the end of the day it's like he was just wanting actual real connection exactly you see this in a lot of famous people who can be literally surrounded by so many people but you can still be desperately lonely because it's not necessarily people who love you for you they just want to be close to someone famous well and think of all the people that kind of exploited him along the way like including his first yeah, wife for me all these producers and things that were using you know his image one way or another it, it wasn't out of a place of oh i care about you as a person it was so what can you do for me exactly So after Valentino challenged the Tribune's anonymous writer to a boxing match, the New York Evening Journal boxing writer Frank O'Neill volunteered to fight in his place. Valentino won the bout, which took place on the roof of New York's Ambassador Hotel. So he did get his boxing match, sort of. 
<laughs> he got his boxing match. I thought that was great. <laughs> so I found an article about how he met Polo Negri, and this is how she puts it. It is all very dramatic. It says in 1926, Marion Davies, which who also was a very famous actress at the time, invited Polo Negri to her costume party. She was to dress to represent the character that you had most enjoyed portraying on the screen. Pula attended dressed as a Tsarina costume from her movie Forbidden Paradise. The costume fit perfectly and was white and gold, and she looked like a queen. Rudolph Valentino, disappointed in love, attended the same party dressed in a matador costume from his movie Blood and Sand. It tells of when Davies introduced her friend Pola to Rudolph Valentino. Pola recalled the exact moment, quote, he was holding my hand and was taller than I imagined he would be. I felt as if my eyes were a camera focused on his life, and I remembered sharply all the things I read about him, that he was just separated from his wife, Natasha Rambova, that there was disillusion written all over his face. As if I saw him in a film now, he was motionless, stopped before me as suddenly as a heartbeat. I saw the hint of a dimple in his chin, his full sensitive lips partly opened, but his eyes held me. They were wide set and so dark I could not see his pupils. My eyes met his and I thought, you can hold me here forever if you try. We danced a tango together, and I was in his arms. I closed my eyes, and we fell into the mad, contagious rhythm, as if we had danced together always. We never missed a beat. The other couples on the floor stopped and watched us. The night seemed magical, and I felt as though I was falling in love with him. The music stopped, and without looking up again, without speaking, I turned on my hill and walked out of the ballroom to my waiting car and left the party. While walking up to my front door, suddenly out of the shadows, a man appeared and said, Why run away from something you know we both have tried to find all our lives? Before I could answer, I was in his arms. Unquote. Is this the next movie script? Dramatic. So dramatic. Very dramatic. So romantic. So they begin dating, but many said that she was doing this only for publicity. But, I mean, who knows? The relationship seemed to be to save his great lover reputation since his divorce from Rambova. And upon his death, Negri made a scene at his funeral, fainted in hysterics at his casket, and claimed that they had been engaged. The engagement claim has never been proven. Uh, Many of Valentino's friends claim that he had never gotten over the divorce from Rambova. Negri seemed kind of just dramatic in general. Like, maybe they were engaged. Yeah, she definitely was milking it. Right. I mean, even for the times, that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. On August 15th, 1926, while on a promotional tour for The Son of the Sheik, Valentino became ill and collapsed at the Hotel Ambassador in New York City. The article in the New York Times wrote on August 16, 1926, Rudolph Valentino, noted screen star, collapsed suddenly yesterday in his apartment at the Hotel Ambassador. Several hours later, he underwent operations for a gastric ulcer and appendicitis. 
He told his manager, George Ullman, to contact Rambova, who was in Europe. Upon hearing of his condition, she responded back, and they exchanged loving telegrams. And she believed a reconciliation had taken place. The surgery went well, and he seemed to be recovering. In the New York Times, August 21st, 1926, quote, Rudolph Valentino's Green Star, who is recovering at the Polyclinic Hospital from operations for appendicitis and gastric ulcer, felt so much better yesterday that he asked to be taken to his hotel. His request was promptly vetoed by attending physicians who told the patient that he would not be allowed to sit up in bed for several days, end quote. In reality, he had probably waited too long for surgery, and in the days after, peritonitis set in, and without the antibiotics of today, the infection spread throughout his body. His first official wife, remember, Jean Acker. Ugh. I guess they had become friendly afterwards and kept in touch via phone with the Polyclinic Hospital in Manhattan, as did Pola Negri, who claimed she was his fiance. United Artists Chairman Joseph Schenck visited Valentino, and his manager, George Ullman, remained near the star while in the hospital. Devoted fans gathered outside of the hospital as soon as the news got out that he had taken ill. Fans swamped the hospital's phone lines with calls for the ailing star. Thousands of cards and well wishes poured in, as well as floral bouquets, which were said to fill the room and hallways of the hospital. <laughs> now, how old is Valentino at this point? He is 31. 31, so so young. In the New York Times, August 22nd, 1926, Rudolph Valentino, motion picture actor, took a turn for the worse yesterday. His surgeons found that he had developed pleurisy in the left chest. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the patient's temperature rose to 104.2. It seems that the powder puff comment was still bothering Valentino so much that it was reported that as he lay dying, he asked the doctor, am I a powder puff now, doctor? The doctor reportedly replied, no, sir, you've been very brave. Aww. Sunday the 22nd, Valentino's strength began to give out, and Father Joseph N. Cangato, who had actually grown up with Valentino, Valentino in Italy, administered the Catholic last rites. He seemed to rally a bit after this, but the next morning his condition worsened. He said to his physician, I'm afraid we won't go fishing together. Perhaps we will meet again. Who knows? Soon afterwards, he began to speak only in blurted Italian. He slipped into a coma at 8 a.m. and passed from this life at 12.10 p.m. Valentino died nearly a week after entering the hospital. His last words were, Don't worry, Chief. I will be all right. When the crowd of fans got the news of his death, the crowd became unruly, and the hospital staff had to call the police to help bring order. Pola Negri, the purported fiancé, took to bed in illness upon hearing of Valentino's death. And every detail of her distress, health, and travel plans to the funeral were all daily fare for the newspapers. She wanted him to be buried in Hollywood. She said, quote, He spent so many happy hours, his happiest hours, here, and because I am here, unquote. It's all about her. Right, because I am here. <laughs> a 
Valentino left no record of his feelings or intentions to marry Polinegri. Although his doctor reported that the actor had spoken fondly of her on the day he died. The medical personnel placed his body in a plain wicker casket and covered it with a gold cloth. And they carried it out a side door of the hospital without anyone being aware of it. After a time, the crowds of mourners realized that they had been given the slip, and discovering that he had been taken to the funeral parlor, they charged up Broadway to take up a place outside there. We've mm-hmm. seen that before in this time, where people just can't yeah. let people like rest. It reminds me kind of like the Bonnie and Clyde in a way, where it's just like, oh, we have to go and see it, see the body. Exactly. And- yeah, and it just gets wilder. Valentino was given a grand send-off. According to the New York City Commissioner of the time, he had never seen, in all his 20 years of service on the force, a crowd as unruly as the one that gathered to mourn Rudolph Valentino that Tuesday, August 24th, outside the funeral home. For three days, thousands, mostly women and girls, crowded the Campbell funeral home to view his body and say goodbye to the romantic idol. The crowd grew to 10,000, which brought traffic in the surrounding blocks to a complete standstill. Jeez. Two hours ahead of the schedule and before the help of additional police could arrive, the funeral home decides to open its doors to the crowd and they surged forward. And as they did, it shoved the police officers that were there through the funeral home's plate glass window. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? It's like Black Friday level craziness. Exactly. But instead of getting a big screen TV, you get to see a dead body. (laughs) And the crowd also shattered a store window at another shop a block away. The police reinforcements arrived then on mounted horseback and were able to drive the horses into the crowd, but were unable to disperse it. In the chaos... A car was overturned, and more than a hundred people were wounded, either by being stampeded or by the breaking glass. They had to actually set up a little temporary emergency clinic on the ground floor of the funeral home to help those that had been wounded. Apparently things were not much better inside the funeral home. (laughs) Mourners were snatching souvenirs... Anything they could lay their hands on in the special gold room where he was lying in state. So they're like taking things from the funeral home just because it's he was there. Yeah, like, I'm taking this flower. I'm taking this vase. I'm taking this book because it was in the room that Valentino. Oh, wow. And the funeral home then made the decision to move the viewing upstairs to a smaller parlor, hoping this would prove more manageable. Here, his casket was placed with candles and flowers at the head and foot, with two large rose bouquets as a backdrop. Even in this more tranquil environment, the women fainted upon seeing the pale Valentino, their Latin lover laying there and gone at just 31 years of age. At midnight, after 10 hours of viewing, they had ushered through more than 30,000 people to see the silent film star. 30,000 people! that crazy that is like three thousand people an hour that's a football stadium yeah the unruly crowd outside of the funeral home resisted the police efforts to disperse them and the next morning thousands more came to stand vigil valentino's manager had had enough and he canceled any further viewing he said 
quote, they show gross irreverence. I am sorry they were allowed to see him at all. Well, good for him. At least somebody has, like, some sense and some respect. Can you imagine, though, how Valentino would have felt after, you know, what we've already said about him and... Oh, he would That's have been the worst possible scenario for him. Like people just like ogling him in death and fainting and all the attention and all the mm-hmm. pain that was caused and injuries over him. After that, it was only friends and family that were allowed in for the viewing. And on the third day of the vigil, his loyal mourners and fans came out again. And the New York City policemen that were there were 200 strong around the vicinity of the funeral parlor. And at midnight on the third day, his coffin was closed for the last time. A sweet story and tribute was by his friends, a group of horseback riders that would get together and ride the Hollywood Hills together. They called themselves the Breakfast Club. They honored their friend by saddling Valentino's horse and taking him on their early morning ride with the star's riding boots sitting reversed in the stirrups. There were many tributes of flowers and roses by Hollywood greats such as Charlie Chaplin, Irving Berlin, Samuel Goldwyn, and Gloria Swanson. Then two funerals were held, one in New York and one in California. Thousands of people lined the streets of New York City to pay their respects at his funeral. Valentino's funeral mass in New York was celebrated at St. Malachy's Roman Catholic Church, often called the Actor's Chapel, as it is located on West 49th Street in the Broadway Theater District and has a long association with show business figures. The procession left the funeral parlor at 1048 on Monday, August 30th. More than 250 policemen were assigned to cortege duty and 12 motorcycle officers preceded the funeral procession to its destination. As a precaution, two medical clinics were set up on the route. (laughs) Right. There were 14 honorary pallbearers, including Joseph Shank and actor Douglas Fairbanks. 500 by invitation only guests comprised the audience of stars of the day, Pola Negri, Mary Pickford, Norma and Constance Talmadge, Gloria Swanson, George Jessel, and Clifton Webb, as well as the magician Harry Houdini. Chopin's funeral march was played as the coffin was taken from the church to the hearse. As Valentino's brother arrived in Manhattan, he made the decision that his brother should be buried in Hollywood rather than taken back to his Italian hometown. And on Thursday, September 2nd, Rudolph Valentino's body left from Grand Central Station in a special railway car. He was encased in two caskets, a bronze and silver casket inside another casket of bronze and gold. To avoid any more mob scenes, the manager arranged for the coffin to be unloaded at Richfield Station outside of LA. On Monday, September 6th, a police escort and a hearse met the train and carried them to the funeral parlor. They then had the second funeral the next morning at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills. And it was again attended by invitation only. Out of respect for Valentino, all of Hollywood studios shut down during the hour of Valentino's funeral. There were no incidents that interrupted the service and that afternoon, Rudolph Valentino came to rest in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. I also heard that along the train route that it was lined with Italian people His people, immigrants from Italy, lined the route to see his train go by that took his body back to Hollywood. And I thought, 
As much of any of the other craziness, he would have appreciated this tribute probably as much or more than anything else that happened. And I think he would have appreciated that for sure. The people that are like the normal, everyday immigrant Americans that are making it work. Not having a resting place of his own, Valentino's old friend, June Mathis, she offered one of her crypts for him in what she thought would be a temporary solution. However, she died just the next year of a massive heart attack, and she was placed in the adjoining crypt. To this day, the two are still interred side by side. Talk about forever friends. She truly was one of his best advocates and friends throughout his whole life, so I think that was A fitting. true friend, yeah. Three months after Valentino's death, Natasha Rambova, here she comes making her claim. Yeah, she's not done. Claimed that she had spoken with the star in the spirit world through the services of a medium. Valentino and Rambova were into spiritualism while they were together. And she reported that he had told her that he longed to be considered a legitimate actor, and that he had met the great tenor Enrico Caruso there in the astral plane. She said he had never mentioned Pola Negri. <laughs> <laughs> just one little dig. Which I thought was funny. And he just happens to mention, guess who I met in heaven? <laughs> and by the way, nope, not going to mention my fiancé. Alleged fiancé. <laughs> Alleged. In December of 1926, Valentino's two Hollywood homes and all his personal possessions were put up for auction. He had left $100,000 of debt. One of the homes, the Falcon's Lair, it was called, sold for $145,000, but his other property failed to sell. His Arabian horse, which he had ridden in the Son of the Sheik, sold for $1,225. After his death, many of his films were reissued to help pay his estate, and several books were written, including one by Rambova, several songs, including one by Gene Ackert, entitled there's a new star in heaven tonight, and we're bestsellers. These women just keep coming back for their piece of the pie, don't they? They really do, and it just is, it's just kind of icky. Like, it just really feels like they never really did love him. <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel protective of him. <laughs> I know. They, it just feels like they keep taking and making their little piece of fame from his fame. Not only that, but in December in 1926, same year, Pola Negri again, she sued his estate for $15,000, claiming that she had loaned it to her fiancé earlier in the year. Uh, of course. <laughs> As I researched this episode, I also kept running into a very mysterious story. A story about a cursed ring. I'm intrigued. The reports are that Valentino was in a shop in San Francisco and saw a tiger's eye stone set in a simple silver ring. He thought it would be perfect for his next film. The shopkeeper, he told him, I won't sell you the ring. It's cursed, he said. It's called the destiny ring. But Valentino, he didn't believe or care. He had to have this ring. So he bought it. But after purchasing the ring, things started to go wrong. It all started with the miserable flop of his movie, The Young Raja. And next, The Son of the Sheik was an enormous hit, but he died wearing the ring. 
Pola Negri was allowed to choose a personal memento from his things after his death, and she chose the ring. Pola immediately fell ill, and while she did recover, her Hollywood career came to an abrupt end. She then decided to pass the ring to young singer Russ Colombo, who reminded her of Valentino. Not long after, he died in a shooting accident. The ring then made its way to Colombo's friend, Joe Casino. Casino put the ring under glass, but eventually decided to wear it, resulting in a fatal hit by a truck a week later. By this time, the ring's reputation had grown. You think? <laughs> yeah. When Casino's brother Dell inherited it, he locked it away in a safe in his house. But it was stolen by James Willis, who set off the alarm in the house, and when the police arrived on the scene, they shot Willis and killed him. Inside his pocket was the ring, which was recovered and placed back in the safe. Director Edward Small retrieved the ring when he became interested in making a movie about Valentino. Small hired an unknown actor named Jack Dunn to portray Valentino and had him wear the ring. Two weeks later, Dunn died of a blood disease. Now the ring sits in a vault in a Los Angeles bank. Is it awaiting its next victim? Or is it all a long string of very strange but coincidental events? It is really strange. I feel like they should have it on display or something, like in a Hollywood museum. But maybe people are yeah. too afraid to really even do anything <laughs> with it, you know? Like, I don't want to be in charge of it. Most people don't believe in curses or things right. like that. But it definitely followed a very strange path. So over the years, a woman in black carrying a red rose has come to mourn at Valentino's grave, usually on the anniversary of his death. Some say that the first woman in black was actually a publicity stunt cooked up by press agent Russell Birdwell in 1928. But I got the real story as told by Carrie Bible, the Hollywood Forever tour guide. And the story is that her name was Deidre Flamey. When she was a young girl, she was sick in the hospital and her mother knew Valentino socially, and he'd come to see her and wish her well, and that when he did, he brought her one red rose. He told her, you will get well, and that you will live a long life. You'll live much longer than me. He just asked the girl to remember him. And so, years later, after his death, she did remember him on the anniversary of his death each year wearing black morning clothes and would go to his crypt with one red rose. And she did this for about 50 years. And now the tradition is carried on by Carrie Bible herself. Isn't that kind of sweet? I that love the real sweet. story to that. That it's not just publicity stunt. That It was somebody that he truly made an impression on and she wanted to honor him. They actually still hold a memorial for Valentino every year in the cathedral mausoleum that we talked about before in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Each year, it is held on the day he died, August 23rd, 
and at 12.10 p.m., the hour in which he passed away. There's a different theme each year, and there's always some kind of a little program where they might show a video or have a reading or a speaker, music, maybe something's read from his poetry book. So they continue to honor him each and every year. He is remembered in pop culture to this day. Valentino's image as a great lover has lasted long long past his death. The term Valentino has come to represent a good-looking ladies' man. There are references in film, cartoons like The Simpsons, pop songs by Queen, The Kinks, and The Bengals. There's even a barbecue joint called Rudolph's Barbecue that has been a mainstay of Minneapolis eateries since 1975, named after Valentino. Bill York recorded a CD of Valentino-inspired songs entitled Rudolph Valentino, He Sings, and Others Sing About Him. All songs were taken from sheet music from the 1920s, including Valentino had two song recordings himself, and they were re-recorded for the album. In his day, Valentino had plenty of songs written about him, including If I Had a Man Like Valentino, That Night in Araby, Sheik of Araby, The Man Behind the Eyes, and my favorite, Rudolph Valentango. (laughs) Valentango. (laughs) The life of Rudolph Valentino has been filmed a number of times for television and the big screen. What do you think, Randy, about our Rudolph Valentino now that you know all about him? Well, I just feel like he was actually so much more of like a sensitive and Mm -hmm. interesting person than I expected him to be. You know, I guess you just, yeah, hear the legend about him, yeah, being this, like, kind of very sensual and Mm -hmm. kind of almost, like, wild, exotic person. But at the root of it, he just really was kind of a kind-hearted and sensitive soul, and it made me really, really like him, but also kind of made me sad because I feel like he just didn't really get seen that way and wasn't really truly appreciated by those around him. Right. And I felt like I wanted to learn more about him personally. You know, we learned a lot about his career. I liked when I could find little pieces like that he loved to cook and he loved animals and he loved riding his horses with his breakfast club. He really was a great lover but maybe not exactly in the way the world portrayed him to be. Well, right. And that's like truly who he is. Like all of those things make us who we are. Those things that we love, the things that we do on our own time, things that um, we're interested in. And mm-hmm. he was just so much more than just his filmography or his career, you know, but those things kind of get missed. Right. Because that's a movie. You're portraying a part. So, yeah, I think it was really interesting to get to know the true Valentino a little bit. I need to look up some of his poems and maybe I can put some in the blog. Um, There's lots, of course, there's lots of photos and um, fun things that will have on the blog and social media this next week with Rudolph and of course pictures of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery 
And little close up, our black cat. <laughs> yeah, still so many stories to tell from there, but I say that every single cemetery. Every time. <laughs> There's just so much, so many incredible stories. And so this was just one more life, one more important soul that lived and more famous than the rest of us, but still just an important life. So thank you, Randy, for being with us in Hollywood today. Thank you for having me. It was a really interesting story and all sorts of twists and turns I didn't expect along the way. <laughs> Even the cursed ring, goodness. The cursed ring and mobs of people and tango legs. I just didn't see any of it coming. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the fainting. I was fainting here on the couch. <laughs> we need to now have a Valentino movie marathon, I think. That would be fun. I would like to see some of them. Well, thank you, Randy. Thank you. Whether Rudolph Valentino felt it or not, he made the biggest splash seen up to that time in Hollywood. And tragically, the star was gone much too soon. He said, quote, Women are not in love with me, but with the picture of me on the screen. I am merely the canvas on which women paint their dreams. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stones bones and shadows also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners